Hello and welcome to Two Bald Men and Friend, the show where we talk about issues and ideas using pop culture as the springboard. I'm your host, Joe, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hi, hi, hi. And today we are joined by our friends, Dan. Hey. And Thong. Hello. Today we're going to be talking about hoodwinked and the idea of subjective truth and subjective reality. So spoiler alert for hoodwinked. Sit back, relax, or if you're driving, please remain upright and continue to drive vigilantly. So, Thong, would you be uh, kind enough to give us a little synopsis of Hoodwinked? Okay, let me paint you a picture. The movie opens up. Little Red Riding Hood walks into the, her grandma's house, talking to the wolf dresses her grandma, asking questions. He starts getting witty. Grandma falls out of the closet, and then a crazy guy with an axe breaks through the wall. And then this is when it starts getting different from the story. <laughs> um, it turns into a crime scene. The police show up and a detective who starts asking each character about their side of the story until the movie progresses from that point. So that's about halfway, maybe two-thirds of the movie is their perspective of how the night went. Right. Um, as we see each perspective they all do sort of a line like you see the wolf yell at little red but when we see the wolf's perspective he gets his tail caught in the camera roll like that type of stuff and so you see like a little bit more revelation as you go from each story yeah in, i really uh, like in in red's telling the story the wolf is like covered in shadows and whatnot and then when the wolf's telling it it's just like oh broad daylight and just like really far out non like not nonchalant but <laughs> i was gonna say in a little red story when she was running through the woods trying to escape the wolf and he just keeps appearing out of nowhere but in his story he keeps calling a cab and it's bringing <laughs> yeah. it from one place to another <laughs> um uh, so this movie came out in 2005 i was in seventh grade and I loved it. I thought it was an incredible movie. And so 13 years later, I thought, you know what? I really think I should create a podcast with my friends so that I can finally be able to talk about Hoodwinked to my heart's content. That's why your original pitch for the name was Hoodwink Cast. <laughs> now it's coming together. <laughs> Guys, I think the whole creation of this podcast, we got hoodwinked. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Which and the character does say in the movie. You've been hoodwinked. Um, During a song, no less. <laughs> that is how he ends a song. Do you, do you get it, guys? It's Little Red Riding Hood. Hoodwinked. Did you make that connection the first watch-through? That took me like three watch-throughs to I get that. I did not make that connection until you said the words two seconds ago. Um, I will say... Watching it again for the first time in a long time on Netflix, uh, it does hold up in my mind. I thought it was still hilarious. I'm noticing a lot more like animation faults. Ooh, yeah, but I think I think that adds to like the humor of like how like awkward it is. Like when they're whenever they're running, it's really yeah. weird. <laughs> And I, I find it charming and endearing seeing that stuff. <laughs> it's the opposite effect for me. But the good news is the format and the writing, I think, are what hold it afloat for sure. Yeah, I think this movie had a lot of lost potential. I think if it was made as like four 
adults, it would have been a lot better, but they're trying to balance marketing to kids, but also like being funny for the parents. I think if they just doubled down on the funny for the parents and made it like maybe a PG-13 or even an R-rated like funny cop version of Little Red Riding Hood, I think this movie could have been like super, super good, but it's in this like weird purgatory for me where I do enjoy it, but it's... It, like, I feel like it could be a lot better. I do think at the time, I'm pretty sure it was marketed in a way that was closer to an adult sense of humor because I remember actually seeing this movie in theaters and really selling my dad on the trailer. <laughs> we were just trying to figure out something to do that weekend and I showed him that and he was laughing hysterically at the opening scene, at the uh, opening scene where Red's just asking questions like, what big ears you have, what big eyes you have. And Wolf is like, okay, we're just going to keep talking about how big grandma's getting recently. (laughs) I do like that. That's definitely a a strong line of like, oh, okay. (laughs) Um, I would definitely categorize Hoodwinked in the same realm as Shrek, which I really enjoy Shrek. And I also think Shrek has some awkward animation. And I think it fits in that pushing the boundaries of what PG can be type of movie. Would you agree or disagree? Yeah, I definitely agree. I think Shrek showed, um, like, oh, you could be a little bit, like, naughtier, even if you're still, like, marketing it to kids. Um, But I don't... I think Hoodwinked tried that, but it wasn't, like, pushing the envelope. It was just, like, adult movie... Kid movie, adult movie, kid movie. Oh, Whereas see. Shrek was like, kid movie, but uh, hey, you you parents in the audience are like this too. We know who brought the kids here. Yeah. <laughs> it mimics a lot of adult theme, or at least themes that you would see in adult movies. And even in the second Shrek film, literally the whole intro sequence is them like parodying adult, like PG-13 films. Like, oh, here's the ring flying up in Lord of the Rings, or the upside down kiss from Spider-Man. Or whatever, and I'm pretty sure there's a few little movie spoofs and references in Hoodwinked as well, for sure. Mm -hmm. I would say a lot of the jokes in Hoodwinked are the nods of, yeah, we're a children's movie, but look at all the flaws of the children's movies and let's, like, exploit them. Like, the example you gave with the wolf was always close to Little Red and they reveal us because he takes a taxi (laughs) is sort of like a nod of in like fairy tales and in stories for kids, you don't really need to explain those transitional points of how are they always there. They just are because that's what's going to fit in the story. Almost like um, an Ant-Man when the villains kept arriving out of the blue. Um, If it were for kids like that, they wouldn't need to justify that. It wouldn't necessarily be a flaw in the movie. But because we as adults were watching it, we were like, well, that's poor writing. Whereas <laughs> right. in, in Hoodwinked, they, they make a nod to that and then explain it later. And I thought that was really funny. I did enjoy that. I think Red's take on the whole scenario felt closer to it being an actual fairy tale. Because you don't know that she is even a black belt in karate until someone else's story down the line. So when she was on her bike, she was being lifted up by birds. She took the whole trip over the grannies, saw the wolf just disappear in and out of the shadows, and it's only in everybody else's story does it unravel. It's not a fairy tale at all. 
Right. The only thing she's guilty of is operating hummingbirds without a license. <laughs> <laughs> I do like seeing the wolf's perspective, looking at her, and her, like, flying over the <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he's just like, huh. <laughs> yeah, I think they did a really great job of like this expanding the storyline through everyone else's perspectives they did a great job of like planting seeds of what happened in other people's stories like in reds and the wolves you hear them talk about an avalanche and then in granny's story you see that she causes the avalanche yeah one yeah going back to like the expansion of the story and those tidbits that you're dropping in like red sees an a mirage of her grandma mm-hmm. telling her to use the hood when she's flying. And then in Granny's story, she's actually there. Yeah. Um, one thing I didn't like is that they revealed the grandma being like an extreme sport enthusiast in the trailer. Where oh, when mm-hmm. you watch the movie, like from start to finish, yes. you can tell that that's a turning point. That's supposed yeah. to be a twist. Mm-hmm. But in the trailer, it, they they they, yeah. they, they, they had to give a difference in each character to get you to yeah. Go. They have to mm-hmm. show you that grandma's not going to be just grandma. But I would have liked it a lot more if it was like, oh, like she's the one innocent one. But it turns out like she caused most of the things that happened in the first and second and third stories. Which speaking of references to other movies and being for adults, in that reveal there is a triple X reference. Yeah. <laughs> or should I call you triple, triple G? G. <laughs> that triple G tattoo on the back of your neck. And it's like the same font. Like it is. <laughs> it is. <laughs> this movie is bananas. <laughs> they were great. And then there was a second twist, like after the whole grandma thing of there was the twist of who actually is stealing all of the recipes. And it was uh, the bunny that was in all the stories. As a kid, I didn't pick Mm -hmm. up on that. Uh, As an adult, yes, I watched it before and I know what's going to happen. But it's a lot more obvious as an adult. Mm -hmm. He like looks way more sinister. Like he has almost like an angry face (laughs) that I completely missed as a child. And everything he does is really out of place in context of anyone else in the story. Yeah. Yeah. I was literally staring as when uh, Red falls out of the cable car and like just staring at his face go from like surprise happy bunny to like evil. Yeah. I noticed that on the watch through for this episode and I was like, oh gosh, like that's... (laughs) Why didn't I notice that? Yeah, how did I miss that? (laughs) But exactly how does the livelihood and successfulness of your business hinge on your original recipes? I was asking the same thing. If your recipes get stolen, don't you have some of them memorized? (laughs) I'd like to imagine, too, that they didn't operate with just one recipe. Well, the recipe books were being stolen. Yeah. Um, But... The idea that you have to close up shop because all of your, like, ancient recipes that have been handed down from family to family. If you've been making them for a decade, right? You should know them by stress. Or is it the idea is like, oh, someone else has the the formula for it now and we'll just make it better or cheaper in a McDonald's form. Yeah, I'd love if it was like, oh, yeah, I memorize all of them, but this thief is going to undersell me. So, like, what's the point? (laughs) You give up before he even even create his franchise. He's like, and then all the people will work for me as my slaves or whatever. Like, like, those are still in the planning stages. <laughs> Did he say that he was going to make his treats more addictive? Yes. Okay. Like I, thought that was, more. I thought that yeah. was pretty, like, a good evil plan. Oh, yeah. Sure. Of, like, I'm not only am I taking your business and I'm going to recreate your formulas, 
I'm also going to add cocaine into it. <laughs> Specifically. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I imagine. Mm-hmm. And, like, mm-hmm. make you keep buying and buying. There is, um, real... I read a list of, like, real-life villains, and there was a chapstick company that actually made a formula where when you apply the chapstick, it makes your lips drier. And so you uh. keep reapplying the chapstick. <laughs> what? <Wow. laughs> And so that's what that's what I'm imagining is uh you keep eating the cookies and then you keep getting hungrier and hungrier. Which is funny because that's literally the opposite point of chapstick. <laughs> yeah. That's like the uh in Foster's home for imaginary friends, Blue is a deodorant spokesperson, and at the end, um the Wait. CEO is like, This deodorant makes you smell worse and everyone's like <gasps> <laughs> And then he goes to jail or something. Because the spokesperson he blue goes to jail no the ceo does. oh okay <laughs> so as adults how did you care for the annoying squirrel character i still loved it really <laughs> yeah okay because boy was i siding with um patrick warburton wolf I was like oh okay come come <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah i was <laughs> siding with him for sure yeah. but i enjoyed it. what kind of what kind of lights are those <laughs> <laughs> what <laughs> I still love when he was on coffee and they had to record him and then slow it down. Yeah. And he had a completely different voice too. <laughs> yeah. Allow me to uh the, um, the cable car upset. <laughs> um I did That's like good. one, I liked the goat. My yeah. brother yes. Jonathan loves the goat song and how he always says well, like, I got horns yeah. well I'm not prepared. <laughs> I also love the goat and, and which cast a curse on me. <laughs> But what? It's I don't know like why out of nowhere. Yeah. I don't know if that's like a like a fairy tale. I, I was so confused. I did forget that the um, movie was technically a musical, so yeah. maybe it was just another opportunity for a song. But I one I really liked um, when he was like, "So you sing everything? Yes, I do. Well, you didn't sing that. Uh, well, did I just? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> moves on. I love that. Clearly, it's not a curse. While I was watching it. Red and the goat go off of a railroad that isn't finished, mm-hmm. and it just goes off. And I'm like, oh my god, that goat was planning to kill Little Red. <laughs> and then when we get to the wolf story, he accidentally blew up the railroad with the dynamite. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> that goat was not evil. <laughs> so I'm just thinking about all the sorts of interchangeable horns he had. Yeah, the rock <laughs> oh, chair. yeah. The I helicopter. Got, I got horns I, for holding my horns. Yeah, I love that line. It's like, I got horns to hold my other horns. <laughs> um, Dan, you brought up that the wolf is voiced by Patrick Warburton. Yeah. This uh, has a surprisingly star-studded cast. Yet another reason I think it should have been like an adult movie. And but nominated. Anne, <laughs> Anne Hathaway plays Little Red. Uh, Patrick Warburton's the wolf. Andy Dick is the evil bunny Boingo. Jim Belushi is the woodsman. Glenn Close is grandma. Anthony Anderson from uh, Blackish is one of the police officers. And Exhibit is Chief Grizzly. <laughs> that's that's a lot of that's them. That's a lot. What's the funding for this movie? Yeah, exactly. like how much how much was this movie? <laughs> I like to think they were all like, eh, this movie's gonna be huge. I'll do it for just for the love of the game. <laughs> they all volunteered their yeah. time. <laughs> Um, 
definitely like stupendous voice actors. Now, whenever I think of Patrick Warburton, I think of Kronk from The Emperor's New Groove. And I think to myself, like, wow, he's a great voice actor. But then I also think, wait, no, maybe he just has like, a really voice. good voice, which I love listening to. But that doesn't make him a great voice actor. <laughs> I mean, maybe it does. I, yeah, I I'm not so. trying to complain <laughs> yeah. about your talent. I'm just saying maybe you were given a gift and none of us can... Hey, you gotta work with what you got. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but I do love his voice and I would listen to that in any context. Fact. But yeah, overall, I'd say like I really enjoyed the movie and what I really focused on was this... As a child, this brand new concept of vantage points and the whole idea of subjective truth. Like, each person was telling their truth when they were being interviewed, but each story was different. And as a child, I'm like, wait, there might be a real lesson here. <laughs> You're telling me that when I get in a fight with someone and they say something that I perceive as not true they might not necessarily be lying. It's just what they understood to be the facts. This, it literally blew my mind as a child. I did not apply it. <laughs> um, I learned it for like five solid minutes and then I completely abandoned it. But now, like I'm thinking like, this is the type of movie I'm going to show my kids, like teach them about what you think is right might not be what other people think the truth is or what's right. And it's something you're going to have to come to terms with. And what's interesting is they don't really get into this movie when someone tells their story. No one's like, you're lying. They're just like, so that's what happened? Yeah. Okay. Like, just complete trust and understanding of, okay, yeah, like, this is what happened to you. So, like, I'm going to believe your side of the story. Mm -hmm. I really love the, uh, the frog detective character. <laughs> he had all the right idioms to fit a scenario. <laughs> Yeah, I love his... Or just when he's like, oh, so you're a thespian. <laughs> yes. I love his line at the end. Oh, bunions, bunion cream. Sorry, keep going. I love his line at the end when um, he's like, if a wood falls in the forest, you're going to get three stories. Yours, mine, and the trees. Yeah. <laughs> um, I really like when he's like, yes, he was creepy, but you can't arrest someone for being creepy. <laughs> and then the pig goes on his walkie. Hey, you know the guy we got in the tank? Yeah, I mean, the creepy one. <laughs> yeah, you're going to have to let him go. <laughs> like, there were a bunch of really tiny lines that were absolutely hilarious. Like, uh, uh, I'm trying to think. This was also the frog. Um, I can't remember, but he says something to the pig. Like, something like, oh, yeah, you're going to bring home the bacon. And then the pig's just like... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I thought a good one was, uh, he goes up to the thing and says, Hey, have you lost weight? No. Didn't think so. <laughs> um, I should know. I built my house out of straw. <laughs> but yeah, going back to that idea of subjective truth that was brought up before and um, what you can learn from this movie, I think it's a very interesting way to show it because all the stories are true but they are all different so like the wolf story doesn't make red story not true it just adds context and how her interpretation might be considered untrue because he wasn't like roaring at her he was just yelling because he got hurt yeah that's what i really liked it was not a 
it wasn't the purpose of the stories wasn't let's spot the contradictions and figure out who's the liar. It was purely let's shift the lens to mm-hmm. get a better view of the whole story. Yeah, it wasn't he said, she said. It was they all said, they all are correct, but they all have bias. And so let's see what we're missing to find out this random, what I consider random, overarching story of the bandit. I feel like this movie could have existed without the bandit aspect without the recipe bandit but it did add what i consider a really fun act two like once all of the Mm -hmm. interviews are done Mm -hmm. with and now that we're addressing like what i would have considered the secondary plot is actually the primary plot Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah i think the bandit exists mainly to just give some sort of resolve because if the lesson is you're all telling the truth it's all just different versions of the truth i'm not really sure how that movie ends (laughs) so you're all arrested (laughs) Um, how does that make sense? <laughs> what was the, uh, the bunny's interaction with the yodeler? Um, he goes in to say that... Oh, jeez, your schnitzel truck got, like... Yeah, That's too bad. If only there existed some sort of, um, super company where he, this, you know, someone would take all these recipes and, uh, you know. Yeah, he, at that point, it's basically like, hey, if you haven't figured it out yet, I'm the bandit, this stupid fucking kid. And I was still like, I'm the kid. Yeah. I'm and just, I still don't pick it up. What a cute bunny rabbit. <laughs> His name is Boingo. He can't yeah, be the villain. Yeah. Isn't that his motivation? Isn't he like, no one takes me seriously because I'm so cute? (laughs) Yeah, that's one of his motivations. And there's that idea of, um, we've talked about this a lot, particularly with the Marvel movies, of, um, I guess you could, I mean, this is obviously a very silly premise, but you can see where he's coming from of, I want to be taken seriously and no one does. That's his truth and his reality. And so I guess it drove him to do to start stealing recipes. Yeah, like I think Hoodwinked had a more developed supervillain than like many superhero movies of I want to take over the world to take over the world and I'm going to take over the world by enslaving humanity. Like that's so basic. Like this Boingo guy is taking over this tri-state area, woodland area. Because, All he really wants to do is make a mini ball. Yeah, he, yeah. he wants to be respected, and he's going to do it on. by getting people addicted to his products, and first he's going to steal everyone else's product. Like, that's a lot more developed than too many supervillain stories. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but going into the, like the subjective truth, it sounds a little trivial and like, maybe just a kid's lesson, but you can really apply this idea even to just like eyewitness testimonies and Mm -hmm. hearing about it in your everyday like life and relationships, this ability to one, have sympathy and empathy and be able to step into someone else's shoes, but also being able to interpret someone else's truth and understanding that something isn't adding up here and like that affecting crime. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, An attorney I work with says that you want to talk to as few witnesses as you can for as short a time as you can. And he used an example of if you talk to four police officers, you're going to get four different stories. And sometimes there are, um, I guess, variance in interpretation or subjectivity where it sounds like one of them is lying. 
but he does stress like they're not necessarily lying they might just be remembering it wrong or be mixing it up with something else he gave me one specific example of um one police officer was saying that the person they had arrested and in the back of the car kept like saying racial slurs and was slurring his words and that's how he knew he was drunk and like he wouldn't stop talking the whole time and then his partner in the car said that he didn't say a word the whole time they were driving so one isn't necessarily lying it's just like they don't remember which is correct and so they might be like mixing it up with a different memory but they believe it to be true yeah like you if you believe something you're gonna your brain is going to add details to really confirm that bias that you have and convince you that that is the truth i'm thinking specifically of my cousin Vinny, uh where all of those eyewitnesses are coming in to say like yeah they definitely robbed the convenience store because i was making grits and i saw them and they were the ones who were just in here and they left and then later you find out well how long does grits take to make about like eight minutes. So there's no possible way that over the course of eight minutes, the two people going into a convenience store, which the <laughs> average time to be in one is about five minutes, couldn't have left. And then two new people couldn't have come in and robbed the place. And then like all of a sudden he's like, well, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, I guess I was mistaken. It's sort of, it suddenly becomes a game of trying to poke the holes and finding out where the uh, embellishments are in stories to try to line up the facts correctly. It's like, okay, where can we trim these embellishes to uh, fit the mold of the, the one truth that we're trying yeah. to reach? And this, this, this discrediting process can be used for good or it can be used for evil. Like when we're talking about maybe a rape victim yeah, like trying making to... Making a murderer. Or like, making a yeah, murderer, exactly. For sure. You talk about... All of these details that maybe traumatize you, maybe you are misremembering, but because it's really hard to think about, and a lawyer comes in and discredits you because you said this, but yesterday you said that, and like, yes, you're driven by your emotions, so you might be remembering something slightly different, or you might give a detail that's a little different so you don't have to relive it in the same way, and now instead, you're being dismissed, saying, no, this didn't happen to you, or this or that, but it can be used for good, and it should be used for good. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> Um, the idea of this like fallible memory um, is reminding me of deja vu um, because you guys mentioned the idea that your brain will add details to make it to um, embellish it basically and that's one of the theories of what happens in deja vu it's that you're in a very similar situation to something that happened once and so your brain is just taking the details that it's processing now and is like well no you've seen this exact thing before um, one example, now that you bring it up, is during, while psychology was still developing as a science and Freud was the main top dog and psychotherapy was really big where like you sit on a couch, um, the therapist assumes you were molested as a child and that's what he gets you to talk about. That happened a lot. Mm -hmm. Like over, while they were still like discovering this idea of psychotherapy, Basically, the therapist was biased into believing that every flaw from a human comes from a trauma as a child. And so they'd keep getting at it and they'd keep saying, like, talk about your childhood. Well, did this happen? Did that happen? Do you remember ever, like, being hit? Like, do you remember this and that? And eventually, the patients would start remembering something that literally never happened. 
because they were just told over and over that this is probably what caused that. Leading eventually, them yeah, eventually they start thinking like, oh wait, maybe there was this one time where my dad hit me, or maybe there was this other time where this, this, and that. Objection! The therapist <laughs> is leading the patient. <laughs> and yeah, and the scary part is that the relationship between therapist and patient is completely confidential. It's behind closed doors. It's a very intimate setting, and because it was such a new science and they didn't know what they were doing, like it caused a lot of rifts between patient and parents. Because the parents were like, wait, you... Where is this coming from? Do you think that we tied you down and hit you? That's what my memory says. What? (laughs) How could you... Who is this guy? And like it literally created those scenarios between... And it's... It's crazy what the mind can do and what it can convince you of if you want to believe it. (laughs) Um, Speaking of that, um, I think we do have to remember that our brain is fallible because it is, you know, a body part just like any other. Um, Going back to deja vu, another theory of why it happens that I really like and I think it's valid is basically your brain has to take a break. But it takes it very shortly because your brain can't just like turn off. So it'll basically be in one moment, you'll perceive it as two because your brain like shut off for a second to rest, but it's still one moment. So it's processing it as two different scenarios, but it's just one. So you're stuck with this feeling of like, I think this has happened before, but it's happening right now. You double clicked on uh, Google Chrome and two windows <laughs> popped yeah. up. And like, Whoa! Yeah. That's and what I just immediately closed the other tab. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think when stuff like this happens, you have to remember, like you know, your brain is susceptible to, you know, bodily failure. Mm-hmm. And you might even consider, like, when you take drugs and you take hallucinogenics, at while you're experiencing it, you might not realize that it's not actually happening. But if you tell someone someone the story of what you saw, no one's going to accuse you of lying. They're going to say, oh, yeah, that's what you saw. That was your perspective. But it's not the truth. It's not what happened. Your brain can do that all the time, even when it's not on um, artificial drugs, because your brain is constantly creating those chemicals that might cause those types of experiences. I thought the My Cousin Vinny example was perfect because there were a lot of examples in that film. Actually, that was pretty much the whole film. It was just witnesses going back and forth and Joe Pesci having to refute all of them, especially the well, older woman who said I could see him perfectly. And then he backed up about 30 feet, raised two fingers and said, how many am I holding up? And she had absolutely no idea. <laughs> Yeah, and then right. the judge said, "What the uh, <laughs> let the jury know he's holding up two fingers." Yeah. <laughs> that was it was a a great comedy. First off, uh, but yeah, that danger of believing wholeheartedly that what you see or what you remember is the truth is so perfectly portrayed in this movie. I absolutely love that yeah. movie. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite sort of courtroom dramas is uh, Twelve Angry Men. Mm-hmm. If you've ever seen, that's like a fantastic way of letting letting someone a little too passionate in their bigotry like run away with a room, but obviously with a very strong, talented minds or whatever, like slowly winning over a room. And oh, 
That that movie is fantastic. Are you and thinking Eight play? Crazy Nights? No, <laughs> with Adam Sandler. No, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's what you're thinking of. Yeah, I think you guys are talking about Fantastic Four, right? Let's see. Yeah, no, I was thinking Fantastic <laughs> Four. Adam Sandler was in that. He was the thing. <laughs> what is it? No, there's that like really seminal part in Twelve Angry Men or whatever. It's like this like knife is like so u- unique. There's no way it couldn't. Like, not have been this, like, poor, like, minority kid or whatever. Like, just look this knife. And then our, like, not protagonist per se, but our, our good-hearted uh, juror slams an identical knife onto the table. It's like, I picked this up at a drugstore. Yeah. <laughs> and that does happen a lot with juries. Like, one person that's very passionate. Because typically people don't want to be there. So if one person's taking the lead, everyone else is like, well, I guess I'll just go with what this guy's saying. He actually cares. And so I think 12 Angry Men is a great version of that. And I love that scene where he's like, two bucks at, a, at the corner drugstore down the street. I got it at lunch. Like, so. <laughs> That's terrifying, though. You can buy a knife at the drugstore? <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't know. It could have been a pawn shop. Point being That's was not what I'm the terrified 50s, about. The 50s. That's what I'm terrified <laughs> about. No, knives are scary. They can hurt you. Yeah, like, you guys are afraid of the time. weapon because you're not afraid of the court system because you're all straight white males. <laughs> I'm terrified of that aspect that humans are in charge of judging other humans, and we all suck. <laughs> what, are you yeah. going to leave it up to the computers? I don't know. I don't know what the solution <laughs> is, but 12 jurors doesn't work. Isn't it usually 13? No, it's 12. I thought it was always an odd number. You just so need that one guy that you can so bribe. <laughs> <laughs> that really reminds me, actually, of this um, anime called uh, Death Parade. Mm-hmm. I think I may have seen you. It's... Um, Basically, um, people who die in very bizarre scenarios, sort of, um, together, they're brought to this sort of purgatory to decide which of them is going to heaven and which one is going to hell, and it sort of judges their, and it slowly reveals the actions that led up to both of their deaths, and it's sort of, uh, as they're playing out the, these, like, death games, it's like a, a game of, um of darts where wherever you hit it on the dartboard is going to hit your uh, your partner's respective body part or whatever and then it's like oh that's where the real nitty-gritty stuff is like well you cheated on me with so and so and like really paints the other partner in negative light and uh, i think at one point this is like a a young married couple that like is uh one is having an affair and the the wife at one point reveals that she's pregnant or whatnot and that immediately um, villainizes the um, uh, the father. And we, um, after learning that revelation, the um, the juror decides to send the father to hell, and then the pregnant wife to heaven. And then after the fact, he does that. Um, someone goes up to the the guy who judged him. It's like you know she was just lying about being pregnant, right? <laughs> it's like oh. <laughs> I, I certainly did know that. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do like one. That's an incredible show. Um, but it's it's almost like this state of limbo where they're in purgatory, and that whatever test that they're competing against each other for one to go to hell and one to go to heaven is all just a ruse for the judger to decide based on their character. Yeah. So like, it's, a judge of character. it's almost like a saw trap type of scenario that reveals the worst in you and the best in you. And it's an incredible premise, um, and it's really great for the audience 
to see your opinion sway back and forth, back and forth as the truth, quote-unquote, keeps getting revealed and more and more. I need to rewatch that series because I'm remembering now. Remembering. Because she, I think, at one point, the wife actually villainizes herself to get the father sent to sent to heaven. Like, she paints herself as the bad guy when that's actually not the case. Point being is, there's a lot of layers <laughs> to, uh, to the subjective truths and even figuring out what is, like, just, even if we do figure out what the actual truth is, what is justice followed up by it. And on top of, like, worrying about the subjective truth and, like, what they say is what they perceive, there are so many layers of, also, there are liars out there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is only going to add, like, three or four more layers of complexity where you're trying to figure out what they're saying. First off, is it true or is it a lie? Secondly, if it's a lie, is there any grain of truth? Or if it's a truth, are there biases that make it a lie? Like, geez louise. So that reminds me. My friend is having me play through a game with him called Danganronpa, which is essentially everything that we've talked about so far. The premise is, I think it's 15 or 16 students are trapped in a school by this one mastermind who is in who won't let them out until there's only one person left alive. It's Jigsaw, if Jigsaw yeah. was a the, teddy bear. The whole premise of the game is you play as one character in a school with 15 others, and one person gets killed off in every chapter, and then it becomes everybody else's job to investigate and decide who it is that murdered the other student and to put that person to death. So it's literally what... Ever everybody investigates and finds out for themselves becomes the truth. Mm. Oh golly. <laughs> and it's stressful. It sounds stressful. <laughs> do you play as the one as one person the whole time or do you switch between No, you play as one person the whole time. You're the killer. <laughs> no, it's the killer is <laughs> No, I think Joe figured it out. Yeah, I think I just cracked the code. What's the it only, called? I'm going to play this game and dunk, be right. Dung you're up. The only uh, <laughs> truth aspect of the game is that the mastermind watches everything. So if everybody votes on the wrong person, that is announced to them at the end. But then there's a consequence if anybody's wrong. Oh. Obviously, that, that doesn't happen because the consequence is pretty fatal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, sort of going back to Ndanganropa where you're characters separate are going their separate ways finding their own clues and doing their own separate investigating they're going to search for the details that reconfirm their underlying fears and suspicions to reinforce uh wh whatever they already think is going on and not actually seek for the truth which, which sort of comes around to the whole goody bandit and uh hoodwinked when we're like flipping from person to person who well, who's the bandit and uh, Red finds out a little more secret life about uh, her grandmother that she, she didn't know about and feels pretty portrayed to learn about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then you can get into this like topic of the paranoia and the, the confirmation bias. If you see, if you're worried that your um, friend is keeping a secret or something and then you see that they are texting and when you walk over they are done with their text and they put it away, you go, was he hiding that phone for me? Or, oh, no, I'm just overthinking. 
but what if I'm not overthinking? And then like, and that plays up in your mind of like, what is the truth? And so really like, it comes down to like what they did in the movie, which was just like, listen to each other, like listen through it, like communicate and figure it out. That's on a smaller scale. It's harder to do in a crime. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this was a crime. Okay. They list a bunch in the beginning, breaking and entering, carrying an axe without a license. In the fairy tale world, stealing recipes is essentially murder. <laughs> yeah, I'm. Sur- I would be shocked if they don't send that rabbit to death. <laughs> shocked, like the electric chair that they're gonna put the rabbit in. <laughs> That'll do it for this episode. Thank you all so much for listening. Please tune in next week when we debate what is the better sitcom, The Office or Parks and Rec. If you liked us. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 2 underscore bald men and find us on Facebook. And don't forget to rate and subscribe us on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. Thank you all so much again, and if you were driving, we hope you got to your destination safely and on time. <laughs>